0: Peace, and peace to you friends. Welcome to The Oak Tree Journeys. My name is Mandy Oaks and this is the Encyclopedia Challenge. If you are new to the Encyclopedia Challenge, uh, you may be wondering what in the world is an Encyclopedia Challenge? Do I need to have encyclopedias for this? Do I need to have the internet? Um, those are all good questions. No, you do not need to own a set of encyclopedias. That's what I'm here for. Uh, You don't need the internet um, unless, well, of course you need it to listen to this, Um, but uh, if you want to look up a word, um, all of the words that we go over are listed on my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and there I have all of the words in alphabetical order, although I will confess, um, I have been toying with the idea of flipping it around, so that way the newest is on top instead of on the bottom. Um, but I haven't really fully decided whether or not I'm gonna do that. Um, and we are on our 28th episode, so I don't know if that's gonna be too much trouble to do. Um, but I, I'm I'm toying with it. Uh, I may I may go in sometime um, whenever I get a chance to see if it looks better. Um, but right now it's all in alphabetical order. To so you just scroll all the way to the bottom to get to the newest at the moment, uh, unless I decide to change it. But I'm reading from two separate encyclopedias. Our main one is from 1909, and that is the Imperial... Uh, <laughs> I, it just slipped my head all of a sudden. The New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And we also read from the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. Now, I don't have the full 1909 yet, um, I am uh, in the process of looking for the rest of them. But until, if I can't find the rest of the set, uh, we will go strictly to the Encyclopedia Americana and probably supplement a few other encyclopedias. Uh, I noticed my grandfather has a couple on his shelves, a couple of sets, so I'm like, hmm, maybe we'll use his. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's what I'm here for is to read it to you. And so I welcome you. Thank you so much for joining me, um, for our 28th episode of season one. And season one means we are still in the A's. Uh, we, we still have quite a ways to go. Um, but we're getting there and I'm very, very excited. Um, and I'm also excited because we are almost in the month of September. I mean, can you believe it? September um, and soon it's going to be my favorite holiday. Um, if you want to take a guess, you, you can. If you're on YouTube watching the clip of this uh, episode, uh, go down into the comments and just uh, try to guess which holiday is my favorite holiday. Um, if you're on the podcast, uh, go to theoaktreejourneys.com. It's like contact or contact me and uh, send me a line and, and take a guess. I will reveal my favorite holiday after one of the breaks. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one, but after one of them. And uh, for those of you watching the YouTube clip, uh, you'll see our quote of the month. Our quote of the month, um, for those of you on the podcast, if this is your first time, or just a reminder, is by Pope, and it's Strength of Mind is Exercise, Not Rest. So by reading the encyclopedia, we are not resting our minds. We're not resting our brains. We We are exercising them. And uh, last month, our quote was from Elon Musk. And it was, when something is important enough, you do it even if the odds are not in your favor. So that was last month's. I'm not sure what next month's is going to be, but I do need to get on the ball (laughs) and get that. Oh, 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 oh. And before I forget, I've got some exciting news. Um, I... My brother just uh, said, hey, Mandy, why don't you open up a Teespring store? And I'd been toying with the idea, but his suggestion was just the push I needed. Um, So I am designing a shirt, and I am going to look for other things to see what they have. I haven't fully uh, explored their website yet, but I am looking forward to that. Um, I'm currently trying to design the t-shirt, so yay, look for that soon. And... Don't forget, on August 31st, mark your calendars, we are going to have a bonus podcast, uh, which will not be a clip on YouTube at all, so for those of you watching the YouTube clip, uh, you'll need to go to the actual podcast, and the podcast links are in the description below, Um, but you'll need to go to the podcast to listen to the bonus, and it's a deep dive of the words, of, of a few little words. Uh, Most of the words are listed under our bonus, but there are a few surprise words that will not be listed until the day of or the day after the bonus. All right, so last uh, week, as promised, we are going to begin with the word adjur. So adjur, and that is spelled A as in apple, D as in David, J as in Jack, U as in umbrella, R as in Rudolph, E as in elephant. Okay, so adjure is a verb, and it means to charge solemnly, to bind on oath. Adjuring, adjured, adjuration, noun, the act of solemnly charging on oath, a solemn charge on oath, the form of an oath. Okay, so that's a very serious word, adjure, and we are in the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 for right now. Okay, and our next word is adjust, which is a verb it means to make right or fit, to fit to, to make, to correspond, to put in order, to settle. Adjusting, adjusted, adjustable, that may be adjusted. Adjustment, noun, the act of settling, a settlement, brought to an agreement in. I'm guessing that's mechanics. An apparatus, yes, mechanics. An apparatus for regulating the movement of machinery. Adjustive. Note. Adjust may also come from Old French. Adjuster to arrange. From Mid-Latin. A juxtare a to put side by side. From add to and juxta near. Literary to put, or literary. <laughs> Liter- literally. literally to put side by side, see brachet and skeet. And synonym of adjust, to arrange, accommodate, ask, set right, rectify, settle, adapt, suit, regulate. And our third word, you could probably guess, is adjustment, but not what you think. It's adjustment in the law of insurance. The ascertaining the exact amount of indemnity which the party insured is entitled to receive under the policy and fixing the proportion of the loss to be borne by each underwriter. The nature and amount of damage being ascertained, an endorsement is made on the back of the policy declaring the proportion of loss falling on each underwriter. And on this endorsement being signed by the latter, unless a serious mistake as to facts, The loss is said to have been adjusted. After an adjustment, it is usual for the underwriter at once to pay the loss. In the United States, an adjustment is binding only when intended by the parties to be absolute and final. No specific form is requisite. Fraud vitiates an adjustment. Also a mistake of fact into which one party is led through the fault of the other. See average, comma, in law. All right, and the next word is adjutant. So adjutant is a noun, a very large species of stork, an officer who who assists the commanding officer of a garrison or regiment in the details of duty. He receives orders and promulgates them to the several companies. He inspects escorts and guards before the proceeding on their duty attends to the drill of recruits, is accountable for the keeping of the regimental books, and ought to note every infraction of established rules. An Adjutant General performs analogous duties for the general of an army. He keeps an account of the strength of each regiment, distributes the orders of the day to the brigade majors, and sees the troops drawn up for action. In the United States, the Adjutant General is the principal military officer of the War Department. As the charge of the army correspondence, the army records, the business of recruiting, of issuing commissions, of granting furloughs or leave of absence, and the like. Each of the states also maintains a general staff for the militia with an adjutant general at its head. Adjutancy, noun, the office of the adjutant. Adjutor, noun, anyone who assists. Adjatrix, noun, a woman helper. Adjutant, adverb helping, noun and assistant, an ingredient in a recipe which assists the operation of the principal drug. And we have a second definition of adjuntant, which is Siconia argala, a bird closely allied to the stork made by some naturalists, the type of a separate genus, argala. Adjuntant is a popular name given to it by the English in India, argala the native name. It is a native of the warmer parts of India. It is of large size and has very long legs. In its erect attitude, it is about five feet high. Its extended wings measure 14 or 15 feet from tip to tip. Its head and neck are nearly bare. A sausage-like pouch hangs from the under part of the neck. The bill is of enormous size. It is very ferocious. Swallows a cat or a leg of mutton quite readily. Wow. <laughs> and is of great use in devouring snakes, lizards, and all sorts of offal. And that's not awful. It's, I think I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's offal. It's O-F-F-A-L. It sometimes catches birds upon the wing. The beautiful marabou feathers are obtained from the underside of the wings of this bird and of another similar, very similar species, which inhabits Senegal. So it could swallow an entire cat. Oh my my. Alright, and with that horrendous picture stuck in your head, we are going to go on break. And welcome back. Our next word, or our sixth word, comes from the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. And it is Adjigur, and it is a town of British India in the northwest provinces, province of Allahabad, 69 miles west northwest from Rewa. It has a fortress on a steep hill, 1,340 feet above the sea, accessible only by the well defended paths. Within it are great ruins of temples resembling those of it. Of South India and covered with elaborate sculptures. The population when this was written was 5,000. So there we go, 5,000. Okay, and last week I promised you that there would be several names um, that I did not want to split up. Some of them would have ended up being split up. And those names all end with the last name Adler. So Adler is the last name of those. So for our first one, um, Adler comma Alfred, we go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. So it's Adler comma Alfred, or Alfred Adler. He was the founder of individual psychology, born Vienna, Austria, February 7th, 1870, died Aberdeen, Scotland, May 28th of 1937. He commenced his medical career as a practitioner of... (laughs) I practiced this, but let's see here. Omhthalmology, but later shifted his interests to psychiatry. Appointed by Sigmund Freud as chairman of the group of psychoanalysts in Vienna, he broke away in 1911, good for him, to found what he first referred to as a Society for Free Psychoanalysis. Um, And, yeah, we could say a lot about Freud, but, yeah, okay. Thereby he incurred the wrath of Freud, good for him, but he was successful in establishing points of view which attracted an increasing amount of attention. He emphasized the role of organ inferiorities as determinants of the structure of personality. An attitude of inferiority develops when an individual feels deficient in comparison with others. He postulated a basic striving for superiority or self-assertion, which leads a person with an attitude of inferiority to seek competence. For several years, he was a popular lecturer and teacher in America. His views have proved to be especially acceptable in educational and social work in the United States and in Canada. And I do remember studying about Adler. Um, he, I, I don't remember much. Um, but I do remember he was very interesting. That's pretty much all I can remember right now. It's been a while. Um, so I do need to polish up on that. But there is a little note here. It says, Consult Freud, Sigmund, History of the Psychoanalytic Movements, Section 3, New York, 1938, Way, comma, Lewis, comma, Adler's Place in Psychology, London, nineteen fifty, and this entry was by Philip L. Harriman, Department of Psychology, Bucknell University. So there we go. Now, the next person is Adler, comma, Cyrus, and let's take a look. We will st- we're going to read from both. Um, he was still alive um whenever the 1909 encyclopedia was written and published so let's see what the 1909 new imperial encyclopedia and dictionary has to say about him before we read from the encyclopaedia americana okay and so we have adler, comma, Cyrus or Cyrus Adler he was a librarian and archaeologist born von Buren, Arkansas, 1863 September 13th he was graduated at the University of Pennsylvania in 1883 and took the degree of Ph.D. in 1887 at Johns Hopkins, where for several years he was an instructor in Semitic languages. Since 1892, he had been librarian of the Smithsonian Institution, special commissioner of World's Fair to Turkey, Egypt, Tunis, Algiers, and Morocco, president of the American Jewish Historical Society and member of numerous learned societies He is the author of numerous articles on Oriental archaeology, Assyriology, Semitic philology, comparative comparative religion, and bibliography, and one of the editors of the Jewish Encyclopedia. He has written Told in a Coffee House, a Book of Turkish Tales with Ramsey. Okay, that's all they have to say about him. So remember, he was still alive when this was written. So let's go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 to find out what they have to say about Adler, Cyrus. It says he was an American educator, born Van Buren, Arkansas, September 13, 1863. He died April 7, 1940. He was graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1883 and took the degree of Ph.D. in 1887 at Johns Hopkins University where for several years he was instructor in Semitic languages. He was Librarian of the Smithsonian Institution from 1892 to 1905, Special Commissioner of World's Fair to Turkey, Egypt, Tunis, Algiers, and Morocco, President of American Jewish Historical Society, President of United Synagogue of America, Acting President of Jewish Theological Seminary of America from 1916 to 1924, President after 1924, and president of Dropsy College after 1908, member of numerous learned societies as the American Oriental Society, he wrote numerous articles on Oriental archaeology, Assyriology, Semitic philosophy, and comparative religion. Some of this could he could just get straight out of the 1909. He was an editor of the Jewish Encyclopedia, edited the Jefferson Yearbook 1899-1905, to with Alan Ramsey, polled in the Coffee House, 1898, Jews in the Diplomatic Correspondence of the United States, and Jacob H. Schiff, 1921. Okay, so we got a little bit more information, but as I commented while I was reading it, um, some of it was the exact same, so they must have gotten it from the exact same source, or the, the uh, Encyclopedia Americana used the 1909 source, which there's nothing wrong with that at all. Okay, And there's another man who was still alive uh, when the 1909 uh, New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary was written, and that is Adler, Felix. So let's see what the 1909 version has to say about Adler, Felix. Maybe. Oh, there he is. (laughs) He's at the very top of the page. And let me just say... That got me in trouble today at work. Um, I was doing an assignment, was trying to verify something, and I didn't see it. I couldn't verify it. It was not there. Um, so whenever I sent in my report and told them it wasn't there, it made a huge, huge d- deal, and as it should have, um, because it should have been there. And whenever I double checked. Well, actually, I had triple, let me back up for a second. I had triple and quadruple checked because it should have been there. And I knew it should have been there. And never before had, had something like that not been there. So whenever I went back to do screenshots of everything and let them know, hey, uh, this is what's going on. I don't see it anywhere. When I went back to do it, it was at the very, very top. The very top. Um, so same thing here. Um, Adler comma Felix is at the very top. So um, he was an American author, lecturer and educator, born Alzey, Germany, 1851, August 13th, son of a Hebrew rabbi. He came to the United States and entered Columbia College, where he graduated in 1870, afterwards studying the universities of Heidelberg and Berlin. Returning to the United States, he was made Professor of Oriental Literature and the Hebrew Language at Cornell University. He filled this chair 1874-1876 to when complaints of his teaching as opposed to Christianity resulted in his resignation, and he removed to New York. Here he organized the Society for Ethical Culture. In 1902, he was appointed Professor of Social and Political Ethics in Columbia University, a chair created for him. Wow, so he was so good. He had a chair created for him. That is pretty cool. He has written Creed and Deed, 1878, The Moral Instruction of Children, 1892, Life and Destiny, Marriage and Divorce, 1905, Religion of Duty, 1905, etc. Okay, so he was still alive when this was written. So let's take a look at Adler, Curtis, from the viewpoint, or... Was it Curtis? No, Felix. I'm sorry. Um, sorry, I saw Kurtz, and then immediately saw it said Curtis. Adler, comma Felix. Okay, so this is from the 1956 version. He was an American lecturer and scholar, born Alzey, Germany, August 13, 1851. He died in New York City, April 24 of 1933. He was the son of eminent Jewish rabbi. In 1857, he immigrated to the United States, in which country, and at Berlin and Heidelberg, he was educated. After being for some time professor of Hebrew and Oriental Literature at Cornell University, he founded in New York, 1876, the Society for Ethical Culture, of which he was lecturer. Similar societies have been established elsewhere in the United States and in other countries. After 1902, he was professor of social and political ethics at Columbia University. For the term nineteen oh eight to nineteen oh nine, he was American Exchange Professor at the University of Berlin. His books include Creed and Deed 1877, The Moral Instruction of Children, 1892, The Essentials of Spirituality, 1905, The Religion of Duty, 1905, Marriage and Divorce, 1915, The World Crisis and Its Meaning, 1915, An Ethical Philosophy of Life, 1918, The Reconstruction of the Spiritual Ideal, 1924. The 50th Anniversary of the Ethical Movement, 1926. So, we got a little bit more of his writings in the 1956 version. However, I believe the 1909 version told his life a little bit better. And what he went through a little bit better. Um, That's my opinion. Uh, You can take it or leave it. That's fine. And our 10th entry is another Adler. Um, It's Adler, George J. And for him, we go to just the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. So let's take a look. And before I go on, I just have to say I did get my car back. And it is working very well. Um, So yay! Uh, So it was just the battery, and they've got all that fixed. So that's a very good thing. Um, So I thank them at Porter's um and i appreciate the work that they did and i'm i'm a little sorry for doubting them however i was getting a little concerned there but anyway uh, we all doubt sometimes okay so we're on adler comma george j or george j adler he was a german-american philologist born in germany 1821 died in 1868 He came to New York in 1833, graduated at the University of the City of New York in 1844, and from 1846 to 1854, he was professor of German there. He published a valuable German-English dictionary in 1848, many editions since. Still very useful for its careful discrimination of synonyms, German Grammar, New York, 1868, Wilhelm von Humboldt's Linguistic Studies, New York, 1868, and translated Furel's History of Provincial Poetry. Okay. And I'm just going to make sure I check him off of the list here. And next we have Adler, comma, Herman. And my note says we he is in both. So we're going to read from both. It doesn't say if he was still alive in the 1909 when it was written, but we'll take a look at that. Okay, so we have Adler, Herman. We're still in the 1909 for now. Anglo-Jewish leader, born in Hanover, 1839, on May 29th. He has lived, oh, he has lived, so yes, he was still alive. He has lived most of his life in England, where he has held many positions of high trust connected with his race, having been since 1891 chief rabbi of the British Empire and has been active in general benevolence. He was principal of the Jews' college in London, 1863 through 1891, and as chief rabbi became its president. Besides sermons, lectures, etc., he has written the Jews in England, the chief rabbis of England, Ibn Gaborl, the poet, philosopher, etc. Okay, so he was still alive when the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909 was published. So let's take a look. That's what the 1956 version says about him. Okay, so Herman Adler, Anglo-Jewish leader, born Hanover, May 30th, 1839. He died in London on July 18th, 1911. So just two years after the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary was published. So he died in 1911. He lived most of his life in England, where he held many positions of high trust connected with his race having been since 1891 chief rabbi of the British Empire and active in general benevolence. He was principal of the Jews College in London, 1863 to 1891, and as chief rabbi became its president. Besides sermons, lectures, etc., he wrote, The Jesus in England, The Chief Rabbis of England. No, I'm sorry, The Jews in England. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not sure why I thought he would write about Jesus in England. That was really weird as I was reading it. I'm sorry, the Jews in England, the chief rabbis of England, Ibn Geberal, the poet philosopher, etc. So basically the exact same list that we were given earlier. All right. Who is next? Ah, here we go. The Kurt (laughs) that I misread as Curtis for a second. So Adler comma Kurt we are still in the 1956 version. He was not in the 1909. And uh, there's a reason for that, because he would have only been seven at the time it was published. So Adler, Kurt, and that's Kurt with a K, or Kurt Adler, was a German chemist born in Germany, now Chorzow, Poland, July 10, 1902, educated at the universities of Berlin and Kiel, He has been professor of chemistry at Cologne University since 1940. So he was still alive. And the last sentence, the end of the last sentence is really, really cool. Together with Ota Diels, with whom he has been engaged on atomic research, he was rewarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1950. So you've probably, if you've studied... Atomic research or Nobel prizes, um, or if you watch Sheldon, maybe Sheldon even mentioned it, um, or Young Sheldon. So he won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 1950, and he he uh, did atomic research. Okay, we have looks like our last name of the day. Maybe last first and last name, it looks like. If there are names later, um, they don't have a first and last name. Okay, so our last Adler uh, is Adler, comma, Nathan Marcus. So what a name, Nathan Marcus Adler. And for him, we go to the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909. So let's switch over. And maybe... Okay, so Nathan Marcus Adler, where are you? There you are. He was a German Jewish leader, born Hanover, 1803, and he died in 1890. He was educated at Göttingen, Erlangen, and Wurzburg. He became chief rabbi of Oldenburg in 1830, of Hanover and of the provinces in 1831, and of the British Empire in 1845. He was a chief organizer of schools for Jews in England. He assisted Sir Moses Montefleur in raising the 20,000 pounds, I believe, for Palestine, was co-founder of the United Synagogue Association of the Leading Synagogues, and founder and first president of the Jews College. He published several volumes of sermons and a commentary on the Targum. Okay, so he was very interesting as well. And not that I've read anyone that I didn't think was interesting. Uh, in fact, this uh, reading about all these really cool people, just uh, I don't know about you, but it makes me want to look them all up. <laughs> There's just not enough time in the day, though, to look them all up. Uh, that's why we have a bonus podcast. So if you want me to do another bonus podcast, uh, just let me know in the comments. Um at journeys.com Go to contact and uh, or contact me and let me know if you want me to do a second po- podcast with a deep dive of some, of some of these names. Now remember we've got a deep dive bonus podcast coming up on August 31st. So that is just in two days. And I'm very, very excited about it. So mark your calendars. Um, August 31st is our bonus deep dive podcast and if you want another one if there's a name um that you want to know a person that you want to know more about let me know and uh I will look the person up' we've we've had several very interesting people we've had the empress um who I believe was last week um very interesting life um she was a queen and an empress and and now we've got uh a bunch of Adlers, uh, every, everyone from a chemistry Nobel Prize winner to uh, a psychiatrist. So, so, yeah, definitely let me know if you would like to know more about uh, any of them in a deep dive bonus podcast. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to our 14th entry. And it is not a name. Um, it's ad libitum. So ad libitum. In Ital- Italian, it's a a-picure a or a min- minto, and it's a musical term which implies that the part so marked may be performed according to the taste of the performer, and not necessarily in strict time. When there is an accompaniment to the music thus marked, it must strictly follow the ad libitum time of the principal performer." Sometimes the words cola parte, meaning with the leading part, are written over the accompanying parts. Ad libitum also frequently means that a part for a particular instrument or instruments in instrumental scores or pianoforte arrangements may either be played or entirely left out. Oh, well, so no, no comments from the author of this entry. No passionate comments about how people misuse and abuse um, the musical entitlement there. Okay, I'm a little surprised about that. And, and also I'll admit a little disappointed because whoever writes the entries for the music has huge, I mean, huge passion or did have a huge passion for it um, and was not afraid to show it. Our last word or entry before break is add measurement. Add measurement. And that big giant word, it's just measurement with A-D slapped in the beginning. That big word, ad measurement, has a small definition. It means adjustment of proportions, art, or practice of measuring according to rule. So there we go. And uh, we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. And uh, confession. Uh, this is actually the second time I've recorded this part. So, uh, in my notes, this is technically part three of season one, episode 28. I was originally outside um, for this part, um, and I'm actually out. I was outside for part four as well. Um, but this is the only part I have to redo because my dog decided to start barking incessantly. Um, At something. I still don't know what it was, um, but uh, it was too much to ignore. Um, But before I begin uh, the word, the next word in the list, which is our 16th word, just want to let you know that we are in the 1909 New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary um, until word 37. So until Word 37, we are going to be in the 1909 uh, New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. Uh, and also at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that I my favorite holiday is coming up. And I am very, very excited about it. Um, and before we get to break, I will let you know what that holiday is. So if you want to take a guess, or if you want to let me know what your favorite holiday is. Uh, hit up theoaktreejourneys.com, go to contact or contact me, and let me know. Okay. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's uh, go ahead and go to our next word, which is our 16th, 16th word. Um, for me, it's this is the second time, um, but uh, this word is admonicular. So admonicular is an adverb, and that is a big word for a small definition. So the definition is helping as a support giving help subordinate to So there we go um adminicular okay and our next word or next entry is administer and uh that is a verb it means to give or tender as an oath to direct the application of laws as a king or a judge to manage to dispense as justice add to, to bring aid or supplies to, administering, administered, administration, noun, the act of carrying into effect, so that's effect, not effect, so effect, direction, the government of a country, the act of organizing, supplying, and equipping the military forces of a country, administrable, adverb, capable of being administered, administrial, ministerial, administerly, administrative, able to carry into effect. Now here um, is an interesting, here are two uh, interesting definitions. Um, We have one, administrator, so that's a word that you've probably heard a lot, so administrator, and that is the man, so that's important, the man that carries into effect, one who directs. Okay, so we still use the word administrator to mean a man or a woman. However, in the early 1900s, and I've got this starred, there was a different word for the woman that carries into effect or directs. And this is really cool. It's administratrix. So administratrix was the woman that carries into effect or directs. So, administrator was the man, and administratrix was the woman. Administratrix. I think I want to use that word um, later on uh, for something. I don't know what yet. But I like that. I like that there were two separate words for the man and the woman. So And the woman's was a lot cooler. I mean, come on. Administratrix. Well, it has an X at the end. (laughs) Pretty cool. And uh, if if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. You can disagree with me. Let me know. Go to theoaktreejourneys.com. Hit contact. And if you disagree that that is not the coolest thing to do, is to separate those into the man and the woman. And the woman's is a much cooler word that I wish was still in existence today. Just let me know if you disagree. That's fine. Synonym of administrator to minister supply manage contribute or contribute conduct apply dispense of administration charge care management control government conduct regulation direction distribution dispensation execution okay and just mark these off again <laughs> so the next word or entry as you could probably guess is administration in politics In its widest sense, the executive government of a nation or state as distinguished from its permanent constitution, the executive functions as distinguished from the legislative and judicial, also the whole body of executive officials, in a restricted sense, in England, the Privy Council, especially that select committee of it known as the cabinet or ministry. In the United States, in restricted sense, it denotes the president and his cabinet with their chief assistants especially during one presidential term. See Executive Department colon Secretaries of Executive Departments colon Ministry comma and Executive Government. All right, and right along with that, we have Administrator in Law. So Administrator in Law. One commission from the proper court to manage and distribute the estate of a person deceased without leaving a will or whose will designates no executor competent. The nearest friend, the next of kin, or a creditor of the deceased, or any other person competent to make contracts may be commissioned. Usually, an administrator is obliged to give a bond for faithful performance of his trust. It is the duty of an administrator to file an inventory of the property, to collect debts due the estate, and to pay pay all legal claims upon it, including funeral expenses, and to distribute the residue under direction of the proper court. As the distinction between the terms administrator and executor, though still maintained in law, is not always strictly observed, the term administration often denotes the action also of an executor. It's the executor of a will. And those of you who've lost loved ones um, know that uh, there is a huge responsibility Especially the debt collectors when it comes to them. Um, not not a fun thing to do. Alright, or to deal with. Okay. And uh, before we get to our next entry, which is a rather long entry. It takes up almost one entire page plus a few lines of the next. So before we get into that one, uh, have you made your guess yet as to my favorite upcoming holiday? And if you have guessed... Thanksgiving, you would be wrong. (laughs) So I will reveal what my favorite holiday is coming. And remember, this is the 29th of August. I had to look, even though it is on my paperwork. Um, The 29th of August. So there's also Labor Day coming up, too. So just keep that in mind. Uh, But on to our next entry, Admiral, noun. Commander of a Navy or of a Fleet, a Flag Officer, also one recognized as Chief Commander in a Mercantile Fishing or Pleasure Fleet. Also the Admiral's Ship, a Great Ship, Admiralty, Noun, Department of Law Pertaining to maritime Affairs, See Admiral, Admiralty Jurisdiction, Admiralty Court, in Great Britain, the Administrative Function of the Body of Government Officials which Controls the Navy, the officials themselves as constituting a government department known as the Board of Admiralty. say Admiralty, Board of, and we will actually get to that. Also, the building in London in which the board sits, Admiral is the title of the highest rank of naval officers commanding the navy or a fleet. Now, here's an interesting fact about the word Admiral. Okay, you ready? The term Admiral introduced into Europe during the Crusades. So, it was introduced to Europe during the Crusades. That is pretty cool. Seems to have been used in a definite sense, first by the Sicilians, then by the Genoese. About the end of the 13th century, it came into use in France and England. The first English admiral of the seas, Admiral de la Merdu-Roy de Eglantire, on record was William de Leborn. In Get this, 1286. So remember, that's the 13th century. His office, however, was not that of commander, but comprised those general and extensive powers afterward exercised by the Lord High Admiral of England, i.e., both the administrative functions now vested in the Lord's Commissioners of the Admiralty. The Admiralty comma Board of. And we will, <laughs> very soon. And uh, the jurisdiction, Judicial authority now vested in the admiralty division of the High Court of Justice. The office of Lord High Admiral was filled last by the Duke of Clarence, afterward William IV. British admirals are in three grades, admiral, vice-admiral, and rear-admiral. But the former division of each of the three grades into three sections of the red, of the white, and of the blue has been abolished. Admiral of the fleet is a higher rank conferred at the will of the sovereign. It corresponds with Field Marshal in the Army. In the United States Navy, the rank of admiral was established by Congress, in the three grades of admiral established 1866. So 1866 was the grades of admiral. Vice admiral was 1864, rear admiral 1862. An an admiral carried his distinctive flag at the mainmast, a vice admiral at the foremast, a rear admiral at the mizzenmast. The first two were created for Civil War rewards and were abolished by creating Act on the Death of Admiral Porter in 1891. The rank of admiral was revived in 1898 and conferred on Commander Dewey. In 1899, Congress abolished the rank of commandeer, increased the number of rear admirals to 18, comprising two classes of nine each, The first nine ranking with Major Generals in the Army, the second nine to Brigadier Generals. The pay of the Admiral is, now get that is, so remember this is the early 1900s, is $13,000 a year. There we go. In peace vacancies in the grade of a rear Admiral are filled by regular promotion from the list of captains, subject to examination according to law. During war, rear admirals must be selected from officers on the active list, not below commander, who shall have eminent, eminently distinguished themselves by courage, skill, and genius in their profession, and shall have received the thanks of Congress for distinguished service. Rear admirals on the retired list may be recalled to active service in war. Okay, so the second definition of admiral, so there is another entry for admiral there's actually two definitions within this entry. So one, in entomology, not etymology, but entomology, a nymphoidal butterfly, any one of several species as the red admiral and the white admirals of the genus Basilarachia. Number two, in conchology, one of the cones, all of the cones have a similar external outline. The aperture is long and narrow. The head of the living animal is more or less lengthened, the proboscis elongated, the foot is splay and abruptly cut off in front, the tentacles are rather widely separated, and the eyes are placed on these organs. See cone shell. All right, now we are about to get to Admirality, comma, board of, just as promised. Okay, and before we do, Uh, Have you taken another guess at what my favorite holiday is? Uh, If you guessed Christmas, you would be wrong. (laughs) Um, My favorite holiday, I'll give you a clue, is you get to dress up in costumes. And sometimes I do that on Christmas, and sometimes I do that on Thanksgiving. Um, Whenever I'm hosting it, uh, I'll, I'll dress for the occasion. However, very specifically halloween so if you guessed halloween give yourself a pat on the back that is correct i did try to throw you off with labor day um that was that was not nice of me but you know all's fair <laughs> so our next entry is our 22nd entry for today and that is admiralty comma board of and that is department of the british government which has charge of the entire administration of the navy it comprises six lords commanders I'm sorry, commissioners, who act in some cases collectively and others individually. Of these lords, two are civil or political, and four naval or sea lords. And the head of the the department is the first lord of the admiralty, who is always a cabinet minister exercising a general control of all admiralty administration. All right, and our next entry is Admiralty Court. And that is again in England, formerly a court created to try and to decide maritime causes. Its civil functions are since 1875, and they may have changed by now, um, exercised by the probate divorce and admiralty division of the High Court of Justice. And its criminal jurisdiction is obsolete. In American law, a tribunal exercising jurisdiction over all maritime torts, contracts, injuries, or offenses, its civil jurisdiction extends to cases of salvage, bonds of bottomry or hypothecation of ship and cargo seamen's wages seizures under the laws of impost navigation or trade cases of prize or ransom charter p- parties contracts of freightment between different states or foreign ports contracts for conveyance of passengers contracts with material men jettisons maritime contributions and averages and generally to all assaults and batteries damages, and trespasses taking place on the high seas. Its criminal jurisdiction extends to all crimes and offenses committed on the high seas or beyond the jurisdiction of any country. A suit is commenced in immorality by filing a libel upon which a warrant is issued for the arrest of the person or attachment of his property if he cannot be found, or a simple menation to appear, or in a proceeding in rem, a warrant is issued for the arrest of the thing in question. Okay. And that was admiralty court and here is an an interesting um, one they're they're all interesting to me but this is admiralty droids not droids but droids so that's d as in david r as in robot so robot o as in october i as in igloo t as in thomas s as in sam so that's admiralty droids and if you need to know how to spell that again Either rewind this or go to my website, theoaktreejourneys.com, select Encyclopedia Challenge, and the words are there. Okay, so again, in Great Britain, prerequisites or prerequisites, the right to goods taken from pirate pirates or to ships seized at the outbreak of hostilities, etc., formally attached to the office of admiral or to the admiralty revenues. They are not as such recognized in United States law, and in Britain, the proceeds of droits, of Admiralty are now paid into the Exchequer for the public use okay and we have uh, before we get to our last entry before break uh, just a reminder my first attempt at recording this part was outside and the next part does continue outside my dog did bark a little bit my apologies um, on the next part but it wasn't enough to warrant redoing that part so just a little little heads up there. Okay, so Admiralty Island is our last entry before our next break. On the northwest coast of North America, between 47 degrees 2 and 58 degrees 24 latitude north and 134 degrees 52 and 135 degrees 30 longitude west. It is about 80 miles long, well wooded and watered. It is an in, it is inhabited and belongs to the United States. So that's pretty much all it says about that. Okay, and time for a break. will be back in just a bit. And welcome back. So as promised, our next entry is Admiralty Islands. And that, those are a group of about 40 islands to the northeast of New Guinea, between 2 degrees and 3 degrees latitude south, and 146 degrees 18 longitude, and 147 degrees 46 longitude east. They were discovered by the Dutch in 1616. The largest is about 50 miles long from east to west. They abound in coconut coca trees, Um, I don't know if that's, like, cacao cacao, or coconut, um, and are inhabited by a raw, I'm sorry, by a race of tawny, frizzle-headed savages. Yep, that's how they're described, a race of tawny, frizzle-headed savages. Um, yeah, so, there's Admiralty Islands. So, our next entry is is Admiralty Jurisdiction, and this is fairly long, too, um... It's a judicial cognizance of a certain class of cases arising under the Constitution of the United States by Act of Congress. The Constitution has delegated to the courts of the national government cognizance of all cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, and Congress has given to the U- U.S. District Courts cognizance of all civil cases of admiralty and maritime jurisdiction, including all seizures under laws of imposts, navigation, or trade of the United States, where the seizures are made on waters navigable from the sea by vessels of 10 or more tons burden, within their respective districts as well as upon the highest seas. So if it's less than that, <laughs> uh, wonder what happens. Okay, The district court has jurisdiction as a court of admiralty over all torts and injuries committed on the high seas and in ports or harbors within the ebb and flow of the tide. It has jurisdiction to redress personal wrongs committed on a passenger on the high seas by the master of a vessel, whether these wrongs be by the exercise of direct force or be consequential injuries. This court may decree damages for an unlawful capture of an American vessel, e.g. by a French privateer, and may proceed by attachment, and has jurisdiction in cases of maritime torts, personal or otherwise, It has jurisdiction of suits to reinstate owners of vessels who have been displaced from their possession, and in the case of a father whose minor son has been abducted and seduced on a voyage on the high seas, he may sue in, his, in this court as well for the tort as for wages earned by such son in maritime service. This court has also, as a court of admiralty jurisdiction, concurrent with the courts of common law over all maritime contracts, wheresoever the same may be made or executed, or whatsoever be the form of the contract. It may enforce the performance of charter parties for foreign voyages and a lien for freight under them. It has jurisdiction over contracts for the hire of seamen when the service is substantially performed on the sea or on waters within the flow and reflow of the tide. But unless the services be essentially maritime, the jurisdiction does not attach. The master of the vessel may sue in the admiralty for his wages, and the mate who on his death succeeds him has the same right. Seamen employed on board of steamboats and lighters engaged in trade or commerce on tidewater are within the admiralty jurisdiction. But those on ferry boats are not so wages may be recovered in the admir- admiralty by the pilot deckhands engineer and fireman on board of a steamboat but unless the service of those employed contribute in navigating the vessel or to its preservation they cannot sue for their wage. wages in the admiralty musicians on board of a vessel who are hired and employed as such cannot therefore enforce a payment of their wages by a suit in the admiralty the admiralty jurisdiction expressly vested in the district court embraces also captures made within the jurisdictional limits of the United States. The civil jurisdiction extends extends to cases of seizure on land under the laws of the United States and in suits for penalties and forfeiture incurred under the laws of the United States. The civil jurisdiction extends also to cases in which an alien sues for a tort in violation of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. This court has also jurisdiction of actions by and against consuls and vice consuls. Okay, and we are done with admiral or admirality. I'll just check these off. And our next word is admire, and I accidentally checked that off while I was making my checks. So, admire is a verb, and it means to look upon with pleasure. To love or esteem greatly, admiring, admired, admirable, adverb worthy of esteem or praise of a quality to excite wonder or esteem, admirably, adverb in an admirable manner, admiringly, adverb in a manner to excite wonder, with esteem, with admiration, admirableness, noun, and admirability, noun, the quality of being admirable. Admiration, noun, wonder mingled with pleasure or slight surprise. Admirer, noun, one who admires. Synonym, my apologies for that. Uh, the synonym of admiration is surprise, wonder, astonishment, amazement. Okay, our next word is admission. In practice, the act by which attorneys and counselors become recognized as officers of the court and are allowed in practice. Admission in corporations or companies, the act of a corporation or company by which an individual acquires the right of a member of such corporation or company. In trading and joint stock companies, no vote of admission is requisite for any person who owns stock therein, either by original subscription or conveyance, is in general entitled to and cannot be refused the rights and privileges of a member. Nothing more can be required of a person demanding a transfer on the books than that he prove to the corporation his right to the stock. Admission in evidence, a concession or voluntary acknowledgement made by a party of the existence of certain things or conditions or of the truth of certain statements. The admissions or declarations of a party in respect to the subject matter of an action at law or suit in equity may always be given in evidence against him. As distinguished from confessions, the term is applied to civil transactions and to matters of fact in criminal cases where there is no criminal intent. Express or direct admissions are those which are made in direct terms. Incidental admissions are those made in some other connection or involved in the admission of some other fact. Implied admissions are those which result from some act or failure to act of the party. To be considered as evidence, admissions may be made by a party to the record or one, identi- or one identified in interest with him, but not where the party of record is only a nominal party and has no active interest in the action. Admissions may be made by one of several having a joint interest so as to be binding upon all, but mere community in- of interest as in case of co-executors, trustees, or Huh? Oh, co-tenants, is not sufficient. The interest in all cases must have subs- subsisted at the time of making the admissions. Okay, and our next word is admit. So we have admissions, and then admit. Admit is a verb, and it means to permit, to enter, to receive as true, to allow. Admitting, admitted, adjective, conceded, as in an argument, recognized. Admittable. Adverb, capable of being admitted. Admitter, noun, one who. Admittance, noun. Permission to enter, power of entering. Admission, noun. Entrance, power of or permission to enter. Admissible, adverb, that may be allowed or admitted. Admissibly, adverb, admissibility, noun, the quality of being admissible. Synonym of admit, to receive, allow, grant, permit suffer, tolerate, of admission and admittance, access, entrance, concession, initiation. Okay, and our next word is admix. So that's, we had admit with a T as in Tom, and now we have admix with an X as in xylophone, or (laughs) x-ray. So admix, verb, to mingle with something else, admixing, admixed, admixture, noun, a substance formed by mingling one substance with another. Also, ad admixion. <laughs> wow. Okay, admixion. Um, yeah, that's say that ten times fast. All right. And uh, our next entry is admonish. Okay. Um, admonish verb to warn, to reprove gently, to advise. Admonishing, admonished, admonisher noun or admoniteur noun, one who admonishes. Now, for instance, um, I have had to be the admonitor, uh several times while babysitting, and I'm sure you parents out there have had to be admonitors several, se- more than several times. Um, uh, it's not necessarily fun by any means, but it's necessary because we love the children. But, uh, yeah. So, admonish... A ad- and. Admonition, noun gentle reproof, caution. Admonitive adverb also admonitory adverb that conveys, ca- conveys caution or warning admonitively synonym of admonish to advise, caution, warn, reprove, reprimand of admon- admonition, reproof, warning, caution, reprehension. So, so, for those of you who uh, have to admonish children, it is a gentle reproving and advisement. Okay, And the next word is uh, kind of weird. I'm probably going to butcher it. I'm going to do my best. Adnacent or adnocent, adniscient, adverb. Grown to, in botany, fused together, or adherent, side by side, Adnation, noun, in botany, the adhesion or con- consolidation of the floral verticils with one another. Okay, that wasn't so bad. Okay, and we have a big word with a small definition. So the big word is adnext. Adnext, adverb, in botany, reaching to the stem only, as in the gills of agarics. And our last word before break is a ad- So that's not a do that we had last time, um, but this is a do, um, which is uh, like the t- title "Much Ado About Nothing." Um, let's see if I can find. Oh, here it is. A do that we had last week is an expression of regard or kind wishes on parting which means I commend you to God. So let's see what this definition of A-D-O is. A-D-O is fuss, trouble, bustle, difficulty, and that is a noun. So much ado about nothing is, you know, much fuss about nothing. And I know there's a book about it called Much Ado About Nothing, and there's a movie. Um, I'm not much of a, of a reader for, for that type of book I did try to watch the movie I think I couldn't last five minutes um yeah that was not my cup of tea but the other ado the one that means I commend you to God that is more my cup of tea so there we go and with that we'll go to break welcome back and uh, we finished with ado before break so let's go to our next entry and that is adobe so adobe actually it's telling me to spell it adoba huh that's weird okay so adoba uh spanish from adobar to dobe or plaster or to daub or plaster collectively adobe okay so there we go adobe "...sun-dried bricks from any native clays, especially those made in the arid western and southwestern regions of the United States, as in the Great Basin, Arizona, New Mexico, etc., by molding the bricks and then turning the sides alternately to the sun day by day or a week or two, stacking up for use when sufficiently baked. These, however, are the resource only of people in an inferior state of civilization." As the rain soon dissolves them into streams of mud, hence also they are impossible at all. They are impossible at all save. Oh, okay, okay. That it was just worded really weird. Um, hence, also they are impossible at all save where rain is very infrequent. Okay, so basically, if you are trying to build a house like that where it rains a lot, uh, you're not going to be able to save it. The sizes are usually two, 18 by 9 by 4, and 16 by 12 by 4. The larger ones in the best building used as headers, the greatest length crosswise to the wall, and the others as stretchers, lengthwise. Okay, so there's that. And as I promised earlier, our 37th word will be in the Encyclopedia Americana. It's actually from both. Uh, it's I'm going to read it from the New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and then go to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956 to compare it. Now that word is adolescence. So we're going to see how the early 1900s uh, defines adolescence versus the 1950s. And of course, uh, the definition has changed in the 2000s as well. Um, That's okay. So, uh, before I do, before I read these, um, I just want to mention again my bonus podcast. Uh, mark your calendars; it's in a couple of days, August thirty first. So remember, August thirty first will be the bonus podcast. And I've been toying with a uh, reading teenage angst poetry, um, and it is mine. Um, there's a story behind it, um, but this it's possible I might read one. <laughs> No more than one, um, but yes, I am planning on reading at least one, um, or you may get to hear at least one. We'll, we'll, we'll see, but I'm very excited about the bonus podcast, so mark your calendar for August 31st. All right, so our next entry is adolescence, and that is a noun. Remember, we are in the 1909 first, and it also has adolescency noun State of growing up from childhood to manhood or womanhood in boys from the age of 14 to 25 years and girls from 12 to 21. So that actually may not be too far from modern day. Um, Applied sometimes to the lower animals. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Adolescent adverb pertaining to youth growing. The adolescent period is one of peculiar importance physically, mentally, and morally. And that's true. And morality matters. The changes which occur in the bodily organs are remarkable and result in radical alterations of the organism as compared with the period just preceding. The maturing of the sexual powers with the accompanying changes in the emotional life are most important. This is the time when the young person first really enters into full companionship with the intellectual and emotional life of mankind. It is a period of tumultuous enthusiasms and dislikes. Tumultuous is right. That's why we have teenage angst. (laughs) It is the time when religious feeling is most intense and the general humanitarian instincts. The great majority of conversions occur now. It is a time of unusual mental, moral, and physical stress not again to be experienced in any such manner. It is consequently a time calling for the best mental and physical hygiene. Uh, Yeah. Many nervous disorders may be precipitated if care is not taken to safeguard against morbid tendencies. Okay. This is especially true as regards the disposition toward hypochondria concerning supposed diseases of the sexual organs. I I have to disagree because of modern times, hypochondria um, seems to be very prevalent or prevalent. Yeah, prevalent Um, in uh, a lot of adults. (laughs) in modern times and i i don't know if that's because of google you could just google something and find it or or what that's i remember studying about it in psychology and that's what they were blaming it on was it's you could readily look up anything and it's created hypochondriacs out of a lot of people anyway let's continue okay and uh let's see this is especially true as regards the disposition toward hypochondria concerning supposed diseases of the sexual organs, a tendency often aggravated by false and vicious patent medicine advertisements. Yeah. So, yeah. Wholesome outdoor activities, regular and vigorous occupations, plenty of sleep, and good food are the essentials. They've got it now. Erraticism must be expected, but this is normal and with sensible and patient treatment will take care of itself see child study. I have to say, I really like, um, I I really like that. Had I gotten exercise and healthier foods when I was an adolescent, I think it would have been better, um, because that's also a time when us girls can get a little heavier. Alright, and that was kind of a short definition. Um... We're going to go to the 1956, which has a much longer definition. It covers an entire page, so it's got one little paragraph, it starts off with one little paragraph on page 147, and then the entire page of 148, and then um, one, to two and a half paragraphs on page 149. So let's take a look to see what the 1950s had to say about adolescence. Okay, so adolescence is the period extending from the puberty to maturity or adulthood. It corresponds roughly to what is known as the, quote, teenage, end quote, since puberty is usually attained between the ages of 13 and 15, although it may occur as early as 10 or as late as 17, okay. The characteristics of adolescence vary greatly with age, sex, and temperament. In general, the period is marked by mild or extreme restlessness emotional instability, and a tendency to self-assertiveness. Occasionally, certain childhood behaviorisms reappear, such as cruelty and exhibitionism. Interesting. These psychological manifestations accompany important physical changes. The average girl experiences a marked acceleration of growth between the ages of 11 and 13. The pelvis broadens and breasts develop. Menses, okay, so they call them menstruation... (laughs) Menses are established in most girls by 13, although some start as early as 9, while in others, menstruation is delayed until 15 or 16. And that could, uh... I don't know, I, I just lost my train of thought. Okay, let's let's just continue. In boys, development is later. Between 13 and 15, the voice deepens, the beard appears, bones and muscles become larger, and the sex organs mature. Both sexes are troubled by skin blemishes due to the increased activity of oil glands in the skin. Now, if you recall, in the 1909, Encyclopedia Acne, uh, they said it was actually due to parasites resulting or from the gut. And we're finding more and more that that was more accurate uh, than just oil, oil glands in the skin. Of course, oil glands in the skin do contribute to it, uh, but that's not the only fa- factor in most cases the transition from childhood to adulthood is accomplished without particular difficulty when this is not the case and normal independence with an adult point of view is not achieved the individual presents a problem to society Okay, so they're going to get into the problems of adolescence so whereas the 1909 version said hey if you ignore some of these things it's going to go away the 1950s said we're going to focus on this so if you think about it uh, think about an injury. Uh, you, you're injured, and yes, your sole focus is on that that injury. Like for instance, re- more recently for me, I snapped a tendon in my foot. My focus was on that foot and all the pains that went with it. Well, eventually, you forget about it. However, when someone asks you about it, suddenly you're refocused on it. So if you if you are consistently focused on the problems. The problems are going to remain, but let's see what they have to say. That's just, uh, (laughs) that's me right there. All right, problems of adolescence. The important problems which the adolescent must work through. Okay, so work through will be discussed in this article under the following headings. So there are five headings. Adjustment to physical changes. Emancipation from too great dependence upon parents. I wouldn't say too great. We'll see. Understanding of sex role, which includes making adequate adjustment to the opposite sex. Selection of a proper vocation. Adoption of a purposeful philosophy of life. Okay, so maybe maybe I was judging this entry a little too harshly before we read it. I haven't read this one yet. Okay. Adjustment to physical changes. The striking bodily changes associated with sexual maturity have already been described. It is not surprising that young people are often disturbed by physical manifestations which seem to them abnormal. Adolescence is at best a difficult period of adjustment, and young people can and should be spared needless anxiety over such normal phenomena as menstruation, masturbation, and nocturnal emissions. This can be done if parents prepare children for what to expect. The youth who has had his questions answered throughout childhood learns to accept sex differences. There we go. Um, take note of that, people. <laughs> This can be done, I'm going to say it again, this can be done if parents prepare children for what to expect. The youth who has had his questions answered throughout childhood learns to accept sex differences and looks forward to changes within himself as evidence of his progress toward adulthood. That is, of course, if they are answered properly, properly and correctly. The youngster who is very... Early or very late in maturing needs to be reassured that he will not always be different from his contemporaries. I think we've lost that as society, but that's my side note there. In addition to sexual changes, the adolescent is also concerned with a rapidly growing and changing body. Most adolescents go through a period of shooting up. That's not... Um, <laughs> that means growing. It's a growing. Uh, before they fill out. These changes occur in so short a period, often within a year, That the adolescent has no chance to become accustomed to them gradually. Yet he becomes self-conscious about his body and often seems not to know what to do with it. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Physical appearance is very important to adolescents. They constantly compare themselves to their contemporaries and set up norms which they feel they must adhere to. Each sex recognizes an accepted and appropriate physique in the other. A boy is admired for his ruggedness, his appearance of good health, and his masculinity. A girl for her grace, figure, and femininity. The fact that some boys of 15 may be shorter and fatter than they would prefer, or that some girls of the same age may be too tall and flat-chested, can cause these adolescents considerable unhappiness, even when they may have other qualities which will win them acceptance in their respective groups. While it is not possible to control the growth process of adolescents' excessive weight Thinness and faulty skin conditions can be treated through nutritional or medical means. Personal appearance can also be improved by attention to posture and cleanliness. Yep. Emancipation from too great dependence upon parents. One reason why this period may be a stormy one for the adolescent is the conflict between his desire to be treated as an adult at one moment and his reversion to childhood behavior the next. Extreme swings in mood, daydreaming, and aloofness from parental society are common. The wise parent will respect the young person's need for self-direction while still exercising the necessary control. That's a hard balance. For although the adolescent wants to experiment on his own, he is fearful of too much permissiveness and wants his parents to set limits. He still needs the familiar security afforded by his parents and the good opinion of his parents and teachers is important to him. It is unfortunate that adults, forgetful of their own adolescent behavior, are often uncharitable to the faults of the youngsters. I've I've seen that a lot, too. Um, Please remember what you had to go through, and if you didn't go through something stormy, you are not the norm. During the adolescence, the youth's relationship with his parents should change from the dependent love of childhood to a trusting and affectionate friendship, strengthened rather than weakened by a mature acceptance of faults on both sides. This requires emotional growth on the part of both, both parents and child. Alright, and the next one is part three, understanding of the sex role. Of all the problems confronting the adolescent, that of his social acceptance bulks largest in his own mind. The desire for independence, which may make him rebel against parents and other traditional authorities, is forgotten among his fellows. There in the gangs and cliques characteristic of this age, he seeks acceptance through conformity to the standards of the group in dress, behavior, attitudes, and activity. So remember that. So I'm going to say he or she accepts, seeks acceptance through conformity to the standards of whatever group they're hanging with. And I'm wondering if they're going to mention the frontal lobe, because the frontal lobe is crucial. Um, The frontal lobe is one of the last to form, um, and it can, it can form, uh, between 25 and 30. Okay, but there is a further need for closeness, which the group cannot satisfy in the early teens. Romantic friendships, love affairs, and crushes on teachers and other mature persons are common. Later, the adolescent discovers his own personality and seeks companions to share his innermost thoughts and feelings. He eventually finds his closest human relationship with a member of the opposite sex. Before the adolescent can approach a member of the opposite sex with ease and confidence, he has to be sure of his acceptance by his own sex. If he has succeeded in winning the friendship and interest of those members of his own sex whom he admires, he will have the confidence to take the next step toward emotional maturity. The extent and kind of his relations with members of the opposite sex are generally determined by the conduct of the group. Throughout the years of late adolescence, boys and girls should have opportunities to meet together in wholesome social gatherings. Those who have many friends among the opposite sex are more likely to make a wise choice of marriage partner than the boy or girl with few friends. The crushes, dating, and deep friendships of adolescence lead the way to mature love capable of unselfish, lasting devotion. I think we... Easily forget about that. That's that's actually kind of, that. that's actually really deep right there. Um, Lead the way to mature love capable. So mature love capable of unselfish last, lasting devotion. Yeah. Selection of a proper vocation. Specialized vocational training in junior or senior high school is desirable only if the adolescent has already determined his life work. Few, however, are prepared to make such an important decision at so early an age. Such a specialized course could, in fact, prevent the development or discovery of a deeper interest later. A wide experience gained through a general academic course, hobbies, and part-time jobs helps the adolescent to clarify his tastes, to learn what kind of work he does best and enjoys most. Parents are wise not to impose their own preferences on their children, nor even to urge them to come to an early decision. The good work habits in a home environment that dignifies work and with parents with, and with parents who enjoy their occupations, will be eager to take his place in the world as a productive adult. And, too many, and I'm gonna add my, insert my own comment here. I know I'm gonna do that a lot from time to time. A lot from time to time. That's just that's silliness. Um, as Christians, we are called to work. Uh, too many I hear people checking off. Oh, when's my retirement? What we are called to work, and we should enjoy work. Um, it shouldn't be such a chore. As I say that, um, oftentimes my job, not, not the right, writing is awesome. I love writing, but my job seems like a horrible, horrible chore. Um, and if any of you, any of my coworkers are listening, I'm not going to apologize for that. You know what I mean, Uh, (laughs) but it shouldn't be. We should want to work and we should want, um, our children to work. Uh, not because they they have to, we all, we all have to, but because they should get enjoyment out of it and enjoyment out of the good day's work. And at the end of the day, I, I get that enjoyment, even as frustrated as I can possibly get. I did something. You know. all right, so let's move on because I'll, I'll babble on and on forever about that. Okay, so the last section is adoption of a purposeful philosophy of life. Although many youngsters assimilate the standards of their parents during childhood and never reject them, adolescent revolt against convention or parental authority is familiar. With a newly awakened interest in ethics, religious observances, and the spiritual values of his society, the adolescent may no longer accept his parents' standards uncritically. So it doesn't say no longer accept it, just no longer accept it uncritically. So trying to think for themselves. Adolescent revolt can be especially dramatic where an over-dominated child suddenly rejects the rigid moral standards of his parents or, objecting to their easygoing ways, adopts a stricter regimen for himself. Through trial and error and with the sympathetic assistance of parents, teachers, religious leaders, and professional counselors, the adolescent can eventually work out his own philosophy of life. Conclusion Adolescence is a time of profound physical, mental, and emotional changes, but it is not a break with the past. It is the link between childhood and adulthood. I like that. It is the link to it. And the young person who has had good relationships with his family and friends, who has developed a sense of his own worth, will continue to progress toward adulthood without extreme rebellion or undue submissiveness. I'm glad they added that too. So without extreme rebellion or undue submissiveness. So it can go either way. I, I'm, I actually like that. I li- I wasn't sure I was going to like that entry, um. but I think it adds, I'm glad I read both, because it definitely added to the 1909. I like the 1909, too, but there was a depth here in the 1956 that I really appreciate. Alright, so let's go on to our next entry, and for that entry, we are going to the 1909 uh, New Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary. Let me just check off adolescence. And don't forget, um, you'll get to hear some teenage angst poetry on the August 31st (laughs) Deep Dive podcast. Okay, and our next entry is Adolphus, or Adolf of Nassau. And he was emperor of Germany, born about 1250, died 1298 July 2nd. He was elected emperor in 1290, so elected emperor 1292 May 1st, and was crowned at Aux-la-Chapelle June 25th in the same year. He owed his election in part to intrigues with the electors of Cologne and Mainz, who imposed on him the hardest conditions, but refusing to fulfill them, he soon saw himself hated and deserted. Uh Uh-oh. Urged by want of money, he took £100,000 sterling from Edward I of England to assist him against Philip the Fair of France, but obeyed the Pope's prohibition with holacrity. He thus made himself contemptible to the German princes and became still more odious by taking advantage of the hatred of Albert, landgrave of Thuringia, against his sons and purchasing this territory from him. This involved him in a fruitless five-year's war to subjugate his purchase." Disgusted and urged on by Albert of Austria, the majority of the College of Electors cited Adolphus before it. Before it. He failing to appear, the throne was declared vacant, 1298, June twenty third, and Albert of Austria was elected. A war already existed between the rivals in which Adolphus seemed superior until he was outmaneuvered and surrounded at Galheim and fell by Albert's own hand. For a history of these events and of the lives of Adolphus and Albert C., Prager, Albrecht von Ostrich und Adolf von Nassau, Lipzig, Lipp, 1869. Okay. Alright, and our next entry is Adenai. So there are two entries for Adenai. The first one, Adonai, in Hebrew, one of the names for deity formed in the plural and signifying my Lord. This word served a peculiar purpose among the Hebrews. Wherever in the scriptures they found the holy and awful name Jehovah, the ineffable name, written without its vowels, J-H-V-H, they pronounced Adonai instead. Hence the English word Jehovah, whose Hebrew vowels, vowels and therefore its pronunciation are unknown arose by a combination of the consonants of Jehovah with the vowel points of Adonai, See Jehovah. So, there is a song, Adonai. I meant to look it up, and I forgot to look it up. My apologies on that. But, uh, it's a beautiful song. I can hear the melody in my mind, but I'm not going to even try to sing it. Um, and the next definition of Adonai, noun... Plural, festival strictly the rites of a festival celebrated by the Phoenician and Greek women commemorating the mythical death and return to life of Adonis, Symbolic of the returning spring, Adonian or Adonaiic adverb pertaining to Adonaius, e.g., Adonian games. See game, ancient games. Okay, and our next entry is Adonijah. Okay, so Adonijah, the fourth son of King David, by Haggath, his claim to the throne was best after Absalom's death, and the chief commander commander of Joab and the high priest Abathor supported him. But the captain of the bodyguard, Beniah, the priest Zadok, and Prophet Nathan, and Solomon's Solomon's mother Bathsheba, induced the old King David to make Solomon associate at once. Adonijah fled to the tabernacle for protection, but after the death of David, he was slain by order of Solomon on the pretext that his request for a concubine of David's was a claim to the throne. And that was actually true. Uh, that That is, that all of that's a power play. <laughs> Alright, and our next word is Adonis, or Adonai, Adonis, so Adonis, mythical personage, personage, whose beauty as a child called Venus caused Venus and Proserpine to quarrel for possession of him till Jupiter decided that Adonis should spend part of the year with Venus and part with Proserpine so that he lived 8 months in the upper world and 4 in the under he while hunting he was killed by a boar and Venus coming too late to his rescue changed his blood into flowers a yearly festival in his honor had two parts a mourning for his departure to the underworld, and a rejoicing for his return to Venus. This festival, widely spread among the countries bordering on the Mediterranean, was celebrated with peculiar pomp at Alexandria. Connected therewith were the gardens of Adenaius, Adonai, as they were called. Before the festival, wheat, fennel, and lettuce were sown in earthen and even in silver pots, enforced by heat, intended to indicate, doubtless by their brief bloom, the trans—the transcendence of earthly joy. <laughs> uh, the myths connected with him belonging, belong originally to the East. They display a worship of the powers of nature conjoined with that of the heavenly bodies, and he and he appears to be the god of the solar year. So the similarity of the name of the Phoenician Adon, which signified Lord, is unmistakable. And this word Adon was especially applied to the king of heaven, the sun. In reference to the brilliant beauty ascribed to Adonias a beautiful man is called an Adonias Okay, and there's actually another entry um, with a different definition. And this one actually has a picture of the flower. So I remember I talked about uh, he was turned into, a fly- his blood was turned into flowers. Okay, so here it is. Adonis, a gen- genus of plants of the natural order Ranunculaceae, in which the flower has five sepals and five to ten petals, without scales at the base, and the fruit consists of onless pericarps. The species are all herbaceous, some of them annual and some perennial. Several are natives of Europe, but only one, A. atominus sometimes called pheasant's eye is a doubtful native of britain its bright scarlet petals have obtained for it the name of floss adonis their color having been fancifully ascribed to their being stained with the blood of adonis it is well known it is a well known ornament of gardens in which also adonis estevellus frequently appears and adonis vernalis a perennial species common upon the lower hills of the middle and south of Germany, with early and beautiful flowers. Okay. And we have two more entries before break, and for our next one, we turn to the Encyclopedia Americana of 1956. And thankfully I put the page numbers on here. And this one is Adonai Zedek, Adonai King of Jerusalem at the time of the invasion of Canaan by the Israelites under Joshua, and see Joshua 10 verses 1 and 3. He was the head of an alliance of five kings designing to stop the progress of Joshua's invasion. The kings were defeated and took refuge in a cave. By Joshua's order, the mouth of the cave was closed and a guard set until the pursuit was over. The kings were then brought out and made to prostrate themselves when Joshua and his generals placed their feet upon the necks of the kings in token of triumph. The kings were then executed and their bodies hung on trees until evening when the bodies were taken down and put in the cave, which was blocked with stone. And that is the last entry from the Encyclopedia Americana for this week. So let's go back to the new Imperial Encyclopedia and Dictionary of 1909, and we have one last entry before break, and that is adopt, which is a verb, and it means to choose for oneself, to take or receive as one's own what is not naturally so as a person, a thing, an opinion, to choose, adopting, adopted, adjective taken up as one's own adoption noun state of being adopted the taking as as one's own that which is not so naturally adoptive adverb that adopts adopter noun one who and then adoptedly adverb okay and we'll be back in just a jiff and welcome back our next word um our next entry does not mean what you think it means, um, and it's adoption controversy, and it's actually adopt with an I-A-N instead of an I-O-N. The I-O-N is next, but we have adoption controversy with A-I-N, okay. and it's an echo of the Aryan controversy originated about the end of the 8th century in Spain the country in which the doctrine of Arius had longest held out against the theology of the general church. Lependus, archbishop of Toledo and Felix, that learned bishop of Urgel, advanced the opinion that Christ, in respect of his divine nature, was doubtless by nature and generation the Son of God, but that as to his human nature he must be considered as only declared and adopted through the divine grace to be the for- firstborn son of God. This is uh, Romans eight twenty nine, As all holy men, although in a less lofty sense, are to be adopted as sons of God. The flame of controversy thus kindled spread into the Frankish imp- Empire, the special domain of Catholic Christianity, and gave occasion to two s- synods, one held at Ratzebon, 792 and another at frankfurt in 794 in which charlemagne took part in person and which condemned adoptionism as heresy the catholic doctrine of the unity of the two natures of christ is one divine person and the consequent impossibility of there being a twofold son an original and adopted was upheld by hallucin and the other learned men of charlemagne's court at a subsequent synod at Aix la Chapelle, Felix, yielding to compulsion, recanted his opinions without, as it seems, being convinced. Alepandus adhered fanatically to his views, which were in after times defended by Falmar in 1160, Duns Scotus died 1308, Durandus died 1322, the Jesuit Vasquez 1606, and the Protestant divine Calixtus 1643. That's the first I've heard of that. Um, I don't know anything about that. Um, but if you know something about that, let me know. Uh go to the and uh contact me. And if this is something you don't know about, but you're interested in learning more about, let me know and we'll do another deep dive. Okay, and speaking of deep dive, don't forget August 31st will be our deep dive podcast. And that will be only on the podcast. Right, and now we have adoption with an I-O-N. Okay, so adoption, a legal institution of much importance in both the classical nations of antiquity. Adoption in the stricter sense in the Roman law applied only to the case in which a person in the power of his father or grandfather was transferred to that of the person adopting him. Where the person adopted was already emancipated from the paternal power, patria potestas. And was regarded by the law as his own master, sujuris. The proceeding was called adrogation or ad- adrogatio. Adoption, however, was also used as a generic term comprehending the two species. And in Greece, where there was nothing corresponding to the paternal power of the Romans, this distinction did not obtain. Adoption was the effected. Uh, adoption was effected under the authority of a magistrate the praetor at Rome, or the governor, or praeses in the provinces. Ad- adrogation originally required a vote to the people in the commotia toriata, but under the emperors, it became the practice to effect it by an imperial rescript. Adoption was unknown to the law of the Teutonic nations, and though most of the states of the continent had borrowed it from the Roman law, it has never been an institution in Great Britain. Though its Patrimonial benefits may be given by deed. In the United States, adoption is regulated by state laws and is effected through prescribed forms of obligations mutually assumed, binding the adopting party to be as a parent toward the other, and the adopted party to be as a child toward the adopting parent. Wow, what a definition that, that is. Phew, that was a mouthful. Okay, and our next word uh, is adore. And that's our 48th entry. So adore, verb, to speak to or address in worship, to pay divine honor to, to worship solemnly, to regard with esteem, to love highly, adoring, adored, adorer, noun, one who, adorable, adverb, worthy of worship, that ought to be loved or respected, adorably, adorabl- adorableness, noun, the quality of being Adorable. My dog was not being adorable when she started barking like crazy <laughs> earlier. Um but she's usually adorable. And adoring Lee, adoration, the worship of God, the act of praying, synonym of adore, to worship, reverence, revere, venerate. So wow. So uh, we've kind of watered that down. Uh even I did. Uh so yeah, we need to keep that in mind. Um uh, Right, our next entry is adorn, verb to deck with ornaments, to deck, to make beautiful. Adornment, noun, and adorning, ornament, adorning, adorned, adorner, noun, one who, adorningly, adverb, synonym of adorn, to decorate, embellish, ornament, deck, grace, beautify, garnish, exalt, honor, dignify. <coughs> okay, and our last entry. for for this week, is erosculation. So, adosculation. It's a noun. In botany, the impregnation of plants, a propagation of plants by inserting one part of a plant into another. Okay. Alright, and that is our last entry for the week. I appreciate you being here. And just a couple of notes. Uh, don't forget, I am uh, creating a Teespring store. So I've got uh, some things in the in the works there, um, working on it. Um, so that is to be determined. Not sure when that's going to come out. But don't forget the bonus podcast where we do a deep dive on August 31st. So again, thank you so much. And I bid you the correct version of adieu.